Light a campfire and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking and beyond Fireside Chats. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Andrea Marshall. She is a co-founder of the Marine Megafauna Foundation and the principal scientist for their Threatened Species Program. She's also a National Geographic Explorer, owner and tour leader of Ray of Hope Expeditions, and the champion of the Inyamban Seascape Hope Spot. This Hope Spot encompasses the Bazaruta Archipelago National Park in Mozambique, as well as much more of the surrounding waters and coastline. Andrea is currently in the field with the Marine Megafauna Foundation. So Andrea, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us today. Of course, you're very welcome. It's nice to speak with you. Andrea, as a dedicated scientist, explorer, conservationist, and a campaigner for our world's seas, why do you think it's important to protect, um, conserve, and restock our oceans? Well, our oceans represent life. They dictate everything from our weather patterns, um, and they supply the world with really important protein sources. So whatever way you look at it, our life is dependent on the ocean even from the air we breathe. And so it's really important to keep our oceans healthy from that perspective, from a selfish perspective. Um, but it's also really important because the oceans keep all the ecosystems on the planet in balance. You know, whether they're in the water or those on land, having healthy oceans means that we'll have healthy ecosystems. And so just in terms of keeping the planet healthy, I think it's really, really important to um, kind of prioritize the protection of our oceans. Couldn't agree more. You were, in fact, the first person ever to complete their PhD studies on manta rays. And soon after that, you founded the Marine Megafauna Foundation, or the MMF, as we'll, we'll call it. Firstly, I wanted to ask you, what is it about manta rays which drew to study them? And then secondly, how did your passion for manta rays morph into the founding of MMF? Uh, well, you mentioned that very odd fact, and I think a lot of people find it. I found it strange. In fact, I didn't realize or note the fact that this was really the first PhD that was done on mantas until someone from the media pointed it out to me. I was aware, of course, that no one was really studying them uh, intensively at the time. And the reason that I began to study mantas uh, wasn't just because I thought they were fascinating animals. In fact, I had grown up being incredibly passionate about sharks ever since I was about five years old. Um, I was quite obsessed with sharks, which was um, very concerning for my mother, um, being you know, a child, and, uh, and she can hardly swim. So it's definitely not the profession she wanted me to go into. But I, I had been obsessed with sharks for a long time and the ocean, and I wanted to study them and, and actually came out to Africa to pursue um, postgraduate degrees in like shark research. But at the time, I was also volunteering for the kind of newly formed shark specialist group of the IUCN. And this group like many of the other specialist groups, are in charge of kind of trying to understand the conservation status of uh, specific species groups. So in this case, sharks and rays. Uh, so we were given different species to evaluate their conservation status. And, and it was really, it was a great time because, you know, you kind of learn a lot about different species by doing a lot of the research into understanding their conservation status. And someone slipped manta rays over the desk to me one day, and I was quite excited because I've been diving since I was about 11 years old. And, and, and who doesn't love a manta ray? <laughs> if you don't love manta rays, there's probably something wrong with you. And so I was excited. I was really excited to be able to do the assessment, uh, the very first assessment on these animals. And I was absolutely shocked to find that no one really knew anything about them. I just found that incredibly odd 
that we know probably more about space or many other strange, you know, I'm not, they're strange things, but many other things that are much, you know, further away or harder to study than some of the largest animals in our ocean. And so as I did that assessment, I was A, shocked by the lack of information, but B, also started to get incredibly concerned about their conservation status because, you know, there was a little bit of information at the time suggesting that people were starting to target them and sell them in Asia. And so I thought to myself, you know, this is really concerning, you know, and I had always wanted to study one of the the more obvious sharks, but I realized that there are hundreds and hundreds of species of sharks and rays out there we know nothing about. So when I stumbled across a very large and seemingly healthy population off the coast of southern Mozambique a couple of years later, I thought to myself, hey, you know what, it's not a shark, but I think this is going to be the way that I can value add or contribute to science and conservation. And I'm going to kind of throw my heart into studying this species. And of course, after about six months, I didn't want to go back to sharks because mantas are absolutely so fascinating. So to answer the second part of your question, they just completely draw you in. And I think one of the things that stood out for me really early on is that unlike many of the shark or other species of you know marine animals that I had kind of been fortunate enough to study up until that point, these one these animals don't swim away from you. Um, you know, these animals to you and they like to have encounters with you. And so instead of feeling like I was chasing down animals or forcing studies on animals, mantas seem to be incredibly receptive um, to being studied. And um, I could see immediately that they had personalities. They just didn't seem to have any fear. They like to engage with humans. They could tell almost immediately that we weren't a danger to them. They were curious about us. And so it made it really interesting to study them initially. And then, of course, as I began to study them, I started to realize that they were really extraordinary animals that I think we had uh, underestimated previously. And they started breaking all of these strange records or, you know, things from they have the largest brain of any marine fish, you know, this group. And and that was extraordinary to me. We started putting tags on them and they started traveling incredibly long distances. At the time when I first started putting the satellite tags on them, they, they became overnight the deepest diving fish in the world. And they have subsequently been beat by like whale sharks and other things. But, but you know, really like incredible feats of athleticism and you know, everything that we were learning about them really just pushed boundaries and made us question of, you know, things. And it, so it became really exciting. I mean, in the first couple of years of study, I even described a, a second species of manta ray, which is, you know, pretty extraordinary for, you know, someone at 20 odd years of age. And so it just kept me engaged. It kept me on my toes and it just kept me asking questions. And 20 years later, I'm still just as passionate, still asking just as many questions and and feel like, you know, there's really good job security because I feel like I could probably study them for the rest of my life and be perfectly content. Wow. To sort of listen to you speak about them um, really answers the second part of that question so well. When I asked about what was it that caused you to um, found the MMF, you've just spoken so well into all the incredible things about manta rays. I could answer that in saying that as I was doing my PhD along the Mozambican coastline, not only did I, you know, fall head over heels in love with this species and the population here, I got very connected to it. But as I finished my PhD and those first couple of years after I had finished, I could see what was a very alarming trend and that the numbers of mantas off this coastline, the 
the, the, the rates of encounter of, of this animal along the coastline, um, we're, we were seeing a decline in observational sighting records. And I started to wonder, is that just a, you know, a blip? Or is, or is this a bigger trend? Because we started to see the fact that, you know, these animals are um, under threat globally, and we've been seeing lots of population declines elsewhere. And so it really made me think, what would happen if I just took that PhD and left this coastline? I mean, there's no one else here to, to follow my work up, you know, and I kind of told my friends and family and everyone I know, I said I was just going to stay in Africa for a while, but I think I need to stay here. And I actually asked the co-founder of MMF uh, to come out from Australia. He was one of my best friends and he had just finished a PhD himself. And I told him, you know, the, 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 the ability to do work over here, there's just so much potential. And I'm overwhelmed with a number of species that, you know, exist here and, and, and I'm not able to study them all. I mean, we have tons of whale sharks, which you'd be interested in coming out and maybe studying alongside me. And he says, well, I've never even seen a whale shark before. And I said, well, that doesn't matter. I mean, you know, very few people are studying them, you know, in, in a year or two, you'll probably be a world expert. And it was a joke at the time, but Simon has just finished co-authoring the definitive whale shark textbook uh, last year. And as it turns out, I mean, he kind of also went from zero to hero because when, when no one knows anything about a species, it, you know, any contributions, any work towards uh, determining more about the life uh, history of these animals kind of makes you an expert almost overnight. And so the two of us decided instead of going to work for a university or some other NGO somewhere else that we would do the unthinkable and start our own NGO, which is really risky. But we thought, hey, you know, we're both kind of at the forefront of, of studying these two really big, important, charismatic, endangered animals, and maybe we can start a foundation around it. And we did. And of course, we've subsequently grown into a global organization that studies much more than just mantis and whale sharks, but that is how we got our start. And, and when you say much more than mantis and, and whale sharks, what other species are you talking about? What exactly is meant by marine megafauna? And, and also, why are they important to protect? Yeah, so marine megafauna quite literally just mean sort of large, you know, marine organisms. Usually those animals are quite iconic because of their size or because they're rare. Um, and very specifically, uh, our intention is to focus on ones that are highly threatened. Uh, so the ones that are vulnerable or to extinction or, in fact, critically endangered or something like that. You know, we focus on these animals, um, as you've asked, because they're oftentimes the first ones to be removed from ecosystems. Um, and that's usually because you know, their population sizes are small. They're highly vulnerable to threats. Many of them have these conservative life histories, making it very difficult for them to build back their, their population numbers if they've been decimated by some threat. And, you know, most of them can't really be bred back. You can't really breed back dugongs. You can't really breed back whale sharks. It just doesn't work. So once they've been extirpated or removed from an ecosystem, they're usually gone for good. So they require, I think, a little bit of extra special attention because of those facts. And so we've decided to focus on those animals. And we've also, as an organization, decided to focus on those specific species in the developing world where capacity is low to do this kind of research. So we don't really work in, quote unquote, like, developed countries, you know, where there is much more government funding and capacity to do this work. We, we really like to focus in, you know, areas where the, the coastlines are remote, governments don't really have plans in place or strategies for conservation for these animals. And we can really value add to those um, conservation strategies in those regions or those countries. 
Um, and so that's, that's what, you know, marine megafauna is and why I think, um, you know, it's, they're important to focus on and protect. And it's so interesting, you, you talk about these larger sort of creatures that live in our oceans. And if you think about any sort of terrestrial animal that is of that kind of size, they've all been discovered and known about for you know, a very long time. And it's incredible to me that there are still discoveries to be made, still species to be found in our oceans. I mean, it's wild, you know, and I love, and I love that though, because I do a lot of, you know, talks for kids, um, you know, in engaging with youth, I think is really important because I feel like if you don't inspire that next generation to care, then we're not going to go anywhere. And in talking to kids, a lot of times I sense this frustration that for those explorers out there, they feel like they were born too late. They feel like there's nothing left to discover. And I hear that a lot. And I'm, I'm always so taken aback because I tell them like, we, we don't know a lot still about the natural world and certainly our planet. Um, and I talk to them about discovering these massive populations of of animals like the, the world's largest population of giant mantas we've discovered off Ecuador, uh, one of the world's largest manta populations we've discovered off urban Florida, <laughs> you know, wow. where everyone says, everyone says, but we've been living here our whole life. We didn't know we had manta rays. And I'm like, well, I didn't either. I probably wouldn't have moved to Africa if I knew I could study mantas in Florida where I have a house. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, these discoveries are being made all the time. It, you know, in addition to the second species of manta I discovered about 10 years ago, we're describing a third species of manta right now this year. So there's so much left to be discovered. We don't know where whale sharks give birth. Things like megamouth sharks, I mean, there's only so many records of them in the world. Things like giant squids are coming up. We don't know anything about their lifestyle or what they get up to, and they live in our oceans. So, you know, there is so much left to discover, and I do love being able to take this information out to the masses, especially children, and excite them about the fact that there is stuff that we don't know left to discover, and that we do need to accelerate the pace of science in order to find this information out so that we can try and protect some of these species. It's really important to not just focus on uh, figuring out how to get to Mars, but we need to figure out about, you know, things in our own oceans so that we can figure out how to protect it. That's so well said. And talking about finding out where all these other species are in our oceans and how many there are still to discover, can you go into some of the species that MMF are currently working to protect and the different regions that you are working in to protect them? Sure. Yeah. So I, as I said before, we kind of got our start and are like famously known. I mean, I did a documentary called uh, The Queen of the Mantas uh, very early on in my career. It was a BBC documentary. And of course, that's how I got my little title that I can't seem to get, ri <laughs> get rid of called The Manta Queen. And so we... Well, I, I, I see it's your Instagram handle. <laughs> yeah. Too. You know, and actually, it's a great way to connect with kids because I mean, I mean, all animals do need superheroes. So I don't I don't mind it. I mean, academically, it's given a good laugh to some of my peers. But, um, you know, we did famously get our start in, in mantas and whale sharks, and they are still incredibly important uh, species to us in flagship programs that we have around the world. But it was also very important for us to start contributing uh, to information gathering on other rare species so that we could um, 
kind of continue to kind of um, learn more about these super rare or endangered species that not a lot of people have the privilege to be able to access or study. And so to give you an example of some of those, um, we're studying uh, wedgefish at the moment in Mozambique, and quite famously, uh, the rhino rays, which include the wedgefish, uh, which are a lot of people call guitar sharks as well. Um, they have just been um, kind of recently uh, classified or named as the most endangered fish uh, group in the world. And, you know, they are being targeted across the planet for their fins. You know, they, um, there's a huge issues with um, habitat loss um, and they're being caught incidentally in nets, um, you know, just because of their awkward shapes and things. And so their, their numbers are plummeting as well. And they've just gone unstudied for a very long time to the point that people don't even know how many species there are and let alone have studied them in the field. And so we took up this challenge in Mozambique where we have quite high uh, biodiversity uh, for wedgefish and um, are starting to study them. And I'm finding them absolutely fascinating. I mean, the challenge is real. I mean, it's even though they're a coastal dwelling animal, unlike some of the other much more pelagic species that we study, they're very challenging to find and access and study and so, you know, it keeps it, it keeps it fresh and exciting for us. So that's an, a huge one that we're working on. Um, we also, uh, maybe over a decade ago, discovered that this animal called the small-eyed stingray, which is really the world's largest marine stingray, I think, um, it's a bit debatable, but it's, it's certainly one of the largest marine stingrays out there. Uh, we did a range extension from the Maldives, which was the, 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 you know, the closest location that we knew of that it existed to the African coastline and assumed that it was just, you know, maybe a, one or two of them swam over here from the Maldives. And, and that was probably the end of that. Um, you know, we subsequently realized that we were sitting on probably the largest known uh, population of the small-eyed stingray in the world. This animal has barely been seen, let alone studied before, and this represents the very first research on these animals ever. Um, and, you know, so it's really exciting to be able to contribute to another really important species, obviously an important um, predator here. Um, and so it's, you know, very, very exciting for us to, to not just, and it's probably incredibly endangered too. So it's really exciting for us to be able to pioneer some of this kind of work, whether it's regionally or period, like as in world first kind of stuff. Um, but we also have, we, we were doing the very first work on leopard sharks, for instance, uh, along the eastern coast of Africa. Um, I think we have the biggest program for black marlin uh, off the, well, in this probably part of the, the Western Indian Ocean. Um, you know, we're studying, uh, we're helping to study uh, the dugong population here, which is um, the last viable population in all of Africa. So we definitely uh, focus on a lot of different species, but we really try and pick ones that are critically endangered or are completely unknown to science and which we need much more information on so that we can understand what their conservation status is. You've mentioned a few different populations of marine megafauna, you know, all around the world, um, the Maldives, Florida, Ecuador. You yourself have traveled to many different places, leading people on conservation-driven excursions to see manta rays, as well as some of the other incredible fauna that you've spoken about. Do you have a preferred location that you like to go and see these animals besides the Bazaruta seascape? Or are the seascapes of Mozambique your favorite? Yeah, that's a really loaded question. So I am very privileged in that I do get to travel around the world a lot. And and that's come, you know, from when I was young. As I mentioned, I learned how to dive when I was uh, about 11. But I also worked in kind of the photography filmmaking 
kind of scene since I was very, very young. And so I was fortunate enough to get to travel around the world professionally, even before I became a scientist, you know, all over the place, helping to document these incredible national parks around the world or, or things like that. And so that, that really gave me context as a researcher. And so by the time I was running research uh, uh, studies of my own, I really already understood where the places that I might want to travel to abroad would be. Um, where, you know, when I discovered a second species of manta, I already kind of knew where I might go and travel to to find this, you know, second species and, and, and be able to study it. The problem was, is even though I knew where to go, funding is incredibly limited in this, um, in this space. It's, uh, you know, we're all fighting over very, very little funding that's, that's out there. And so you have to get creative. And I remember that Simon and I were sitting around one day and, and lamenting the fact, I mean, it, I, I am so grateful that people find the work that we do interesting and intriguing and reach out all the time. But I was really lamenting the fact that people would contact me all the time saying, I want to help. I want to come over and dive with you. I want to meet you and help you. And I, I couldn't really help facilitate any of those requests. You know, I'd, I couldn't pre bring people out to rural Mozambique. And I kind of thought to myself, well, I can't really travel with people or and, and I just thought it was a problem. And then at the same time, we were also lamenting the fact that we didn't have any funding to go out into the field to do the work that we wanted to do. And all of a sudden, we had just one of those aha light bulb, you know, epiphany moments where we were like, do you think people would pay to go on random expeditions with us to look for something, whether it's, um, you know, a new population that we might be able to study or get access to uh, samples that we wouldn't other be otherwise be able to get or go look at a fishery that we've always wanted to look at. Do you think people would pay to go with us? And we thought, well, I don't know, let's try. And so we kind of put it out there and framed it like that, which is that if you guys want to get involved and help propel uh, research forward by you know, paying for these expeditions so that the researchers can go out and afford to be able to do these kind of excursions, would you do it? And of course, the, the request to participate just started pouring in. And so in that way, these tours have become a way to help facilitate getting our researchers out into the field, into the places that we need to go, whether it's places that we study on a regular basis and we just need the funding to be able to, you know, have boats out there or whether it's uh, new places that we've never been to that we want to explore so that it, you know, we can potentially do more work in those places. So I have traveled around the world and people always ask me, okay, I want to sign up. Where is your favorite place? And while there are certainly exceptional places, I think on my website, I list probably my top 10 favorite manta dive sites, for instance. For me, the Bazaruto seascape or this Inyamban seascape in Southern Mozambique represents the most exciting frontier for diving for me anywhere in the world. And I say that because in a lot of the other places that we work, things are quite predictable um, in that if I'm going to, you know, certain locations, I pretty much know what I'm going to see. Every once in a while, there's a surprise, but I pretty much know what I'm going to see. Whereas this place, even after 20 years of diving, we see new things every day and the conditions change so markedly and the types of animals that we encounter are, are just so different from day to day that it really keeps us on our toes. And I've also yet to see maybe outside of the Galapagos, certainly in the Indian Ocean, um, so much diversity, especially in marine megafauna. And I keep talking to people about how, you know, this is really the marine Serengeti of, of Africa, that 
if we protect the seascape here, that we will, by extension, protect so many big, charismatic, iconic marine megafauna species that it will be the equivalent of, you know, protecting the Serengeti, but in the marine environment. And so it's such an exciting place to do work. And I've become so passionate about this coastline and also just promoting African oceans around the world and showing people that Africa is so much more than just their terrestrial landscapes um, and ecosystems, that there is so much on offer in terms of the marine environment in Africa that, you know, I kind of want to focus all my attention uh, here in Inyambon these days. I mean, I I do still travel, but I just can't wait to get home and, and carry on my conservation work here. That's wonderful. And it, it segues so nicely into my next question for you. You were recently named as the champion of the Hope Spot, which encompasses the Inyamban seascape. And this also includes the Bazaruta Archipelago National Park, which you've spoken so, so fondly of. Could you tell us a little bit more about Hope Spots specifically? Like, what are they? What is the idea behind them? And why are they so important? Well, honestly, this is such a privilege. And we launched this Hope Sot this year in January. And uh, for me, it was kind of like coming full circle um, in this, you know, amazing dream. Because when I started off my career, you know, as a, especially as a, as a young girl, I didn't have very many role models, right? I didn't have very many people to look to, you know, that were female, strong female, you know, scientists out there doing field work. I'm um, you know, Eugenie Clark, um, of course, but certainly Sylvia Earle for me was that um, figure that I always wanted to to emulate. (laughs) And um, I just wanted to be like her. She's been a mentor for me my entire life. And Sylvia really nailed, nailed this, this hope spot um, thing. I mean, it was a, um, a concept that she put forward in a TED talk, um, that she gave. And, and I really think it was a really important um, idea that she put forward, which is that, you know, sometimes governments are, and I'm especially living in Africa and working in Africa, I know this to be true. Sometimes governments are very slow to recognize and action the protection and conservation of really important areas around the world. And sometimes in order for them to, to pick up that pace and in order for them to really recognize uh, these important seascapes and do something about them, you need to motivate them in the right way. And that takes, you know, developing research. It, it, may, it takes developing good media and international uh, awareness of an area. It, it takes a whole suite of different things to encourage government. And what better way to do that than to um, kind of invest in the champions who are already on the ground, who already know this, and empower them to be able to collect this information and work together in order to bring government around. And so her vision was to kind of unite these kind of hope spot champions around the world, help to provide resources and help to them individually, but also to build a network around the world of hope spot champions who had a a vision of protecting these areas. So a hope spot doesn't necessarily mean that that area is currently protected. It may well be, but a lot of times it's, it's just the identification of a place and an identification of a champion or a suite of champions who will hopefully be able to, over time, protect that area with government. So it's an honor for me, because of my passion for this place, to be recognized as someone who has invested you know, a serious amount of her life um, here. And I think Sylvia knows that I'm, I'm never going anywhere and that I will spend 
every last breath I have to try and protect this place and try and create a, a network and team of a team of other individuals like Tessa who can help us get the information that's needed and get the attention that's that's warranted so that the government will like stand up and um, you know pay attention and and hopefully you know secure some protections for this area. It, it's interesting that you you mentioned that hope spots aren't necessarily areas that are already protected. It might include a protected area, but the entire hope spot is not actually protected. So how much of the Inyamban seascape, or hopes I should say, Inyamban seascape hope spot is protected? Is it just the Bazaruto Archipelago National Park? And then are, are you sort of campaigning to have the other parts of the coastline which are included in the hope spot? Are you campaigning to have those protected as well? Yeah, so exactly. And that's exactly, I think, the point of hope spots is that is that it is it is a hope, right? You know, if they're already completely protected and, and well-managed and, you know, secured, you know, you probably wouldn't need to be that hopeful. You already kind of had it, had it done. So hope spots are very much kind of um, a way to say, what is it that we need to accomplish here and creating a roadmap to getting that done or that protected. And so for me, you know, after doing work here for the last 20 years, we've identified that the Inyamban um, province of Mozambique, of southern Mozambique, is probably one of the most important areas, uh, if not the most important area, um, you know, in, in the country to protect if if we're concerned about like threatened or an, an endangered marine megafauna species. They all seem to spatially aggregate here in this 300, 350 kilometer area. And once we identified that area, you know, we said, okay, well, that's the goal, right? And then we're going to tackle it in stages. So the Basra to Archipelago National Park in the northern extent of the Hope Spot is already protected. And also just to the south of the park, there is a small uh, sanctuary called the Villanculos Wildlife Sanctuary that also has some formal protections. Um, next, in, in terms of our phases, we are working with um, a, a big philanthropic group uh, and government to develop or kind of expand the Pimen um, Special Reserve um, to the south of the sanctuary. So this is going to be an area that will probably increase the protected area footprint by 50% um, of its current protected status, which is significant. But the most important part is that it's adjoined. So that means that already, if this, if we pull this off, which it looks like, you know, the government is very supportive of, that it will, by nature, start to create a seascape where you have a, a, a length of coast uh, that's all adjoined, that being protected, managed by different NGOs and groups, but still a network of protected areas. And that will represent almost a half of what we need to in the province, because at the same time, the Bazaruta Archipelago National Park is seeking to expand slightly to the north. So those three protected areas would already, um, if we pull off those expansions, kind of protect 50%. And once you have the momentum of protection and people can see the benefits of creating this protected seascape, we hope to inspire you know, additional extensions to the south in the province um, over the next kind of 10 to 20 years. That's uh, That sounds amazing. I mean, just the sheer size and I guess the connectivity is also so important for those seascapes. 
super, super important, especially when it comes to large, uh, more highly mobile migratory species like we're working on. And the benefit is, is that if you are focusing on uh, creating spaces that will accommodate large animals, and this this is applies to terrestrial fauna as well, then, then you're going to be creating habitats that are going to be suitable for them, but of course, suitable for all of the smaller animals that don't need to travel that far. So, you know, by creating these large seascapes for these large mobile marine megafauna, we know that we're also creating very healthy um, spaces for all of the other, you know, kind of reef dwelling animals that are living within that area too. And also protecting the food security of this province in the future, which is also a very serious concern. This isn't just about, you know, protecting the, the natural heritage of Mozambique and and just iconic animals or tourism. This is also really about the health of ecosystems here and food security to make sure that, um, you know, there's enough food to feed Mozambicans well into the future. And um, so you've you've mentioned the food security. You've mentioned the incredible um, biodiversity which this area holds. Uh, And um, you've also mentioned tourism. Um, are there any other important reasons that areas like the Inyamba and Seascape um, herb spot should be protected? Well, you know, for me, I, I obviously am, am focused on uh, the conservation of these, you know, specific marine megafauna focal species that we're concerned with. But one of the reasons that these animals are here to begin with is that the oceanography of this coastline is such that the, con- the very narrow continental shelf along this particular province creates this incredible nutrient upwelling off this coastline. So it makes it, it's a very special environment um, because there is so much nutrients being upwelled along this coastline. So it means that there's a lot of biomass here because there's a lot of food here. But in addition to that very specific oceanographic feature that makes this area so special, um, it kind of really straddles uh, the, the, the tropical and temperate kind of uh, mixing zone where you have incredible biodiversity. So when, when, when people are talking about these priority areas to protect uh, globally in our oceans, you know, and everybody's fighting for 30 by 30 and, and trying to figure out, you know, what to prioritize. Um, a lot of people have really focused on these KBAs, these key biodiversity areas, areas that have really high levels of biodiversity. And by protecting them, you're obviously going to be protecting more species and, and, and that biodiversity. And so this area has been identified as a KBA. Um, we know it because it straddles that you know, temperate slash tropical zone. So we have kelp forests in this province. We have you know, rocky reefs in this province. We have coral reefs in this province. We have mangroves in this province. We have you know, tidal flats. And I mean, just the, the types of environments go on and on. And because of all of those different types of environments, um, we have really high biodiversity because, you know, they allow for so many different types of species to, to, to live, you know, in at least one of them. Um, and so it just makes it a, an even more important place to protect. It just doesn't have uh, high biodiversity in terms of marine megafauna species, but it has just general high biodiversity. Um, and so it just makes it the perfect area to protect. Plus, it's also incredibly beautiful. The infrastructure is such that um, I think tourism could explode along this coastline, and I really hope that it's done sustainably. But I think there's that good mix of 
the conservation need is there. And I think for Mozambique, they've really been slow to get the international tourists to pay attention to them. They, they're bypassed a lot because people go to Kenya or Tanzania or Botswana or, you know, somewhere else for the, 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 the grand safaris. And you know, no one was coming to Mozambique. And I think Mozambique can really redefine itself as a place where people can come and experience coastal East Africa and Africa's oceans. And it can be a point of difference, something that can be a draw card for them. And I'm really, really excited for them to be able to develop those ideas um, hand in hand with like these grand conservation um, you know, agendas. Well, I think you I think you've already found the perfect marketing point for it being the marine Serengeti that makes so much sense. I'm pushing, I'm pushing the angle hard. <laughs> so through um, the MMF, you have collaborated extensively with Oceans Without Borders as well as the Oceanographic Research Institute. Could you tell us about some of the work um, that all these organizations are doing in the Inyamban seascape and which species are being monitored and why? Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I feel incredibly fortunate and privileged um, to have so many great collaborators. The work that we do is very difficult. And I mean, even though we have teams all over the Inyamban province, a lot of the work that we're doing um, on these highly mobile species requires uh, a regional approach. So it's it's amazing to be able to partner with Ori down in South Africa, specifically with like um, Dr. Ryan Daly, who is like an absolute expert in bull sharks, which we also have a program for, but in so many other species as well. Um, he's one of just those uh, mythical kind of you know field researchers that is just seemingly good at everything and is just so good in the water. He's a uh, very notably a fishing scientist, which <laughs> we are not. Um, so he has been really instrumental to helping us branch out in terms of our ability to to do certain types of field work. I mean, we had we've always been very in water, you know, approaching animals in water, tagging them uh, in water. Uh, and there's a, a numer numerous species that we're working with now that we just can't do that. So he has been really instrumental coming out and teaching us new um, new techniques, ways to be able to um, tag them that that you know we haven't ever tried before. So that's been really great. Um, it's been so wonderful to work with Dr. Tessa Hempson who. Um, came to us really from northern Mozambique, where she was run out of her, her research center up there, at least temporarily, because of some of the um, the conflict um, up north and the terrorism. And it's been so wonderful to get to know her because, as I said before, you know, it's it's not common for me to find really powerful like female research leads um, that that I have so much in common with. Um, and you know, she has this really wonderful collaborative approach to, to every to everything really um, and it's really nice to sit down with with her and dream up what we can accomplish here together as a team you know where we don't have to worry about you know competing with one another we all we're worried about is how we can um, tackle the bigger issues by each taking responsibility for something else and I think that's the real beauty of finding people that you can work well with is that you can accomplish so much more as a team if everyone sits together and strategically looks at what we need to accomplish and how everyone can value add. Um, unfortunately, that's not how it works a lot of the time out there. There's, as I mentioned previously, there's very little funding. There's a lot of competition. And sometimes marine conservationists are not always working together. And so for me, it's it's really, really nice to be in an area where we are all collaborating. One of my favorite projects that we're working on together at the moment, all three of us, um, 
and we're trying to extend the South African Acoustic Array, which is, of course, the listening stations that are put down that work in conjunction with acoustic tags we place on these migratory species. We're trying to expand that array in South Africa, which is, is pretty big and intense, um, up to Mozambique. And we're doing a really great job of it. I think by the end of this year, we'll probably have like 50 different receivers down between southern Mozambique and the Basarucho Seascape. And so, you know, and that would never have happened without these three different organizations coming together and saying, we want what South Africa has, you know, in order to advance research here along the Mozambican coastline, we need to do the same thing. We need to build an array here. And I think most people would have been too intimidated to do it alone. But by the three of us sitting down together saying, how can we build this and manage this together? All of a sudden, we figured out that you know that that it was it was possible, and uh, we're very excited to see that to fruition. So, um, so yeah, it's it's really great to have uh, buddies out there um, helping you helping you. It's not an easy job, so it's nice to have people out there that are encouraging you and collaborating with you. So, can you take us through what a, a, a day in the life of a marine scientist might look like if you're trying to extend this array that you speak of? And could you explain to us? how these arrays work you know the species are tagged and then the species swim past the array is that kind of the idea yeah sure and that's actually a great way to talk about maybe just like what a normal day looks like for us anyway and yes we do different things every day but you know when we're when we're trying to accomplish something like extending an array into mozambique you know you have to think of it um, in terms of like what we need to do on a daily basis, but also what it looks like to maintain that receiver array over time. So in order to get those 50 or more receivers down in the country, we first have to actually build the receiver base station. So, you know, we have to build these giant cement blocks and then we have to impregnate some type of, you know, a, a, um, like a rebar, like a stainless steel rebar or something into them and then attach these tiny little uh, receivers, which are about the size of like a Coke bottle um, and they kind of attach to the side of these base stations. But once you build it on land, you obviously have to then get this massive cement base station out into the ocean. But before you can even get it out into the ocean, you have to identify the places that you know would be best to place these stations. And sometimes that takes six months of diving and exploration for us to find a new area where we believe that one of these receivers should be placed. Um, you cannot place receivers everywhere. It's impossible. And so you have to be very strategic about it. You know, you do tag these animals with these small little transmitters and they can go anywhere in the ocean. So in order to acquire, you know, data efficiently, you have to place the receivers in, in areas that you want to ask questions about. So we usually are putting them in areas that we consider per perhaps critical habitats or we're asking questions. Is this a critical habitat? Or sometimes we suspect it's a critical habitat and we want information, more information on that. So sometimes it's looking for where they aggregate, you know, looking for something like a cleaning station in mantas or in uh, wedgefish or something where, you know, the animals are going almost every day to be cleaned. Um, we oftentimes put a receiver down in those locations. Sometimes we find with whale sharks or bull sharks that there's a specific area where they tend to be feeding a lot or aggregating to feed. So we'll put down receivers in those locations. Sometimes there's um, a bay uh, where we feel like they do a lot of resting. There might be a mangrove where we think that, the, the, you know, the babies are being born or a nurse, you know, it might be a nursery ground for these animals. And so you strategically place the receivers around, you know, the coast like that. 
it's really hard to get them down. Uh, and then once they're down, you actually have to, with these 50 uh, receivers across a huge province, you have to maintain them. You have to change the batteries. You have to clean them to make sure they don't get fouled. Um, you have to download the data periodically. Every single time there's a storm or a cyclone, we have to go pick up the entire array to protect data and protect the, the instruments. Um, you know, it's really, you know, it takes a, it's a, it's a lot of time and effort that goes into it, which is why most people would be nervous to take it on themselves. And so by, by teaming up and saying, okay, this is going to be a joint effort, we can accomplish it. But then in doing so, not only does it support our individual research of the three different organizations, but it also supports anyone doing research in Southern Africa where their animals might you know, just come up here, whether it's accidentally or they didn't know that their animals, there was connectivity up here. We're getting a lot of South African scientists who um, are getting really excited because we're getting hits on our receiver up here in Mozambique from their animals that were tagged in South Africa and they had no idea they were even moving into Mozambique. Um, so we can also help a lot of other people support a lot of other research programs by maintaining this array over time so that we're kind of, um, you know, helping to facilitate anyone doing research in the region. I think I think you've spoken so well into how important collaboration is, and you know what you can achieve when you when you team up instead of trying to go at at things alone. So that's really really nice to to learn about all the collaboration that's happening in the marine conservation space on our coastlines. And um, I also wanted to ask in in this project that you are working on with Oceans Without Borders and Ari. Which species are being monitored? Well, as I said before, we kind of divvied it up a little bit and um, we're approaching it from a perspective of like what, how can we value add as groups? You know, for us, we specialize in, in things like whale sharks and mantas and, and now wedge fish and leopard sharks and um, some of the stingrays. And so we've decided to kind of, you know, keep to um, our strengths and focus on them. Um, you know, Tessa had been working on like gray reef sharks, um, and things like GTs and other parts of the country. And so decided, well, you know, I already really know how to do that and, and, and target them. So how about I bring that into the fold and, and we can, um, start studying those species down here as well. Um, Ryan's a bit of an all rounder. I mean, he'll help anywhere. And he's, he's the kind of one who, likes to um, help with things that no one else can figure out how to tag. Things like we've always been interested in, in hammerheads here, um, but they're very, very tricky to catch. You know, and as I mentioned before, we're not fishing scientists, so I can't tag them underwater. Um, and so it's been a real pleasure to have him up here trying to, to crack that code and figure out how to get tags on the hammerheads here. Um, but he's also very interested in bull sharks, so he's come up to collaborate with our field researchers to tag more bull sharks in the region. He also helps Tessa as well because um, he's also very interested in giant trevally. And so we, you know, we, we focus on slightly different things, but we're also always collaborating. Um, you know, if we can help one another, um, we, we always will. Um, but we also want to make sure that everyone's playing to their strength as well. And so a lot of the species you've mentioned are predators, maybe even apex predators in their environments. Is there a reason why it's important specifically to protect these species? Sure. I mean, you know, like I said, a lot of the species that we're studying, um, you know, they have their themes. You know, some of them are highly migratory and we feel like they're going to be good representative animals to explain things like regional conservation efforts and, and how to go, you know, like be a good case study for these regional conservation efforts. So, you know, there's there's those aspects that they have in common. 
Um, you know, many of them are, you know, uh, important tourism species and or like endangered. And so the, from the perspective of, of learning more about them from both of those angles, um, you know, I think it's important. But you've made another point, which is that many of them are, are significant and very important predators in this ecosystem. And it's really, really important to protect the predator. And we also study things like brindle bass and potato grouper. And those are also kind of one of those big boss predators out here on our reefs. And um, yeah, and as with the marlin as well. And it's really important to protect the predators because they help regulate, um, you know, the, the, the prey items. They, I mean, really are, are um, responsible for, you know, keeping the, the balance um, of those ecosystems, keeping the reefs healthy. Um, and so it is important for us to know um, what, what they're doing, what their status is like. And, you know, if there are, you know, declining trends, we need to be aware of those so that we can, you know, put more emphasis on um, the conservation of those predators that are going to keep those ecosystems healthy. And the, manage, the managers of both the Basrich Archipelago National Park and also the sanctuary have really mandated us to focus on things like the species that are important for, um, you know, conservation because they're endangered or tourism. But they've also asked us to focus on these predators because they know, too, that those are incredibly important species to study. So we have it really from management uh, itself that that they would like to focus on on these animals going forward. And so we're very excited to be able to provide them with data that might be helpful um, for their management going forward. So you've already spoken a little into this, and uh, I could honestly listen to you speak about marine conservation for at least another few hours. But <laughs> the last question that I, I have for you um, is, what are the major marine conservation goals for the Inyamban seascape going forward? You know, you've spoken already into um, management of the national parks and other conservation areas have mandated you guys to do the work that you are doing and to investigate um, these species. But what are your goals and the overarching goals for marine conservation in Inyamban going forward? Well, it's a really nice question to, to end on. And, you know, it allows me to talk about some things that I haven't really spoken about. I mean, I talked a little bit about our goals with the hope spot of extending protection throughout the whole province and and kind of developing this seascape of, you know, smaller protected areas along the coastline. And that's, of course, probably one of the most important overarching goals of the work that we're doing here. Um, and I've also talked about a lot about research. I mean, I feel so, so strongly in that conservation and management really needs to be underpinned by good science. Um, so often, we are missing opportunities to do good quality management and conservation because there hasn't been good science done first to help inform it. And a really good example is the Basrich Archipelago National Park. Its specific mandate um, when it was created 50 years ago was to protect uh, the dugong, which is the last viable population of dugong in all of Africa. And only in recent years when, it, when they started to be be studied properly, and my husband was a part of those initial efforts, um, especially using aerial surveillance to study them, um, it became alarmingly obvious that the majority of the dugongs, and the paper was just came out, you know, a few days ago, actually, on this from the park and African parks, that the majority of dugongs, um, and in terms of their aggregation areas, are outside the park boundaries to the north. You know, so for the last 50 years, there's been a park here uh, that's mandate was to protect dugongs, only that they didn't do good science and they didn't have the boundaries set properly. So for 50 years, we've missed opportunities to protect this population properly. 
because the science wasn't done. So I really, really strongly believe in like helping to encourage more science along this coastline, not just doing more ourselves, but encouraging more scientists to come along the coastline. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, I think the conservation of this coastline, I mean, is really only going to last and be viable if we get buy-in from local communities too. And so a huge portion of what we do in Mozambique, and one of the reasons that we live here and we operate 365 days a year here is so that we can connect with local communities, um, engage with them, you know, uh, have education programs. Um, and we do that in most of the parts of the world that we were, but we found it particularly difficult along this coastline. And that's because when I first got here, I realized that there was this major disconnect. There's really no religious or cultural, they don't identify with the ocean in the same ways as, um, as you know, certain indigenous communities in, in the South Pacific or in Southeast Asia, um, you know, and people find the ocean here hostile. Many people die, they drown, fishermen get lost at sea. It's a hostile ocean here and people have just become disconnected from it or they, maybe they were never connected to it begin, to begin with. So it's very difficult to get people on the same page um, and, you know, backing marine conservation if they don't have a love or an understanding of it. So I think it's really, really important to um, have significant, to put significant efforts into educating local communities along this coastline, inspiring them, getting them excited about the ocean um, and empowering them to feel safe. We've taught thousands of kids how to swim. Um, you know, we are teaching rangers more about the, the places that they're protecting. Um, we're teaching government more about these places that they're supposed to be um, safeguarding. And I think, you know, just the entire community here that we need to uplift in terms of um, education and uh, connecting them to the oceans. Um, and then we also have to make sure that as we talk about conservation, that we can do that without affecting local communities too much. We need to provide alternative livelihoods, and we have many, many programs in place for that, and so do many other groups along the coastline. And we need to really think about, you know, the fact that, you know, if we want to conserve some of these areas, it's going to mean that some of these communities take a hit in terms of um, their food sources or in terms of the way that they make money. And so how can we bring them into the conservation equation um, and, you know, make it balanced and equitable for them as well? And so I think that's a really important part of the story and that needs to be kind of balanced with the same kind of creating these protected areas and doing all of the science. We can do all of that. But if we're not also protecting the interests of the people, um, then it's not going to go very far. Um, so it's a big puzzle. Um, it's not easy. It's, it's one of those things that's going to take decades to get right. Um, but I think we're well on our way and I have a lot of hope for the future. Oh, thanks, Andrea. That last thing that you mentioned about having buy-in from local communities in order to ensure that, that areas like this remain protected and remain viable um, for generations to come really resonated with me and I'm sure it'll resonate with a lot of people who listen to this, as will most of almost everything that you've said today. So thank you so much for your time. Really appreciated it and it's been lovely to chat to you. Absolutely. Thanks a lot for having me. Thanks, Andrea. Thank you for listening to Leave Our World a Better Place. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode. If you'd like to find out more about And Beyond, please log on to our website at andbeyond.com.